0: On a new sermon series, a short one for the next few weeks, and I've titled it Back to the Future. I came up with another name, but it was not near as fun as Back to the Future is, although it has nothing to do really with the movies. The idea behind our sermon series is this. You may have read or heard heard sermons about the birth of Jesus fulfilling many prophecies. Okay, the the birth of Jesus was foretold several hundred of years before he was actually born. And this week and next week and the few weeks that we have following, each week we're going to take one of those prophecies and we're going to look at where it came from, what was being said at the time, originally. So like today will be 700 years before Jesus was born. So each week we're going to take one of those prophecies and look at why was it said way back then? What was going on? Who was it said to? Who said it? And we're going to do this. With the book of Matthew. So go ahead and, and turn to Matthew chapter 1. I want to point out a few things for you in there. If you take time and just glance through Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, most of you will have set apart in the text there um, little portions all throughout it. Now, they, they might be indented, and so they're, they're separate from the rest. Or maybe they're all bold, but do you see those in there? Raise your hand. Any of you guys see those in there? Okay. Those are the prophecies that I'm talking about. And most often they are quotations from other passages in the Old Testament. So uh, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that's one of those sections. It's a prophecy. It's set apart. It's kind of written as... um, You know, some prose or poetry might be written. And almost all of them are introduced by a phrase like you see in 122, where it says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So that's giving you a a big key of this is something that was said many years before. Uh, If you look in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, for so it was written by the prophet. And if you glance, uh, 2.15, so this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Um, In verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. You see in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah. That's what we're going to be talking about, okay? We're going to take each one of these, uh, one a week. We're going to go back in there, see what was going on, and then... Kind of use that as a way to, to look forward to what was really being said about Jesus. If this was said so long before, why is it so important and how was it fulfilled in Jesus's birth or in his life? But before we actually get into today's prophecy, let's talk a little bit about what prophecy actually is, um, maybe what it is not, those kind of things. If we say prophecy— A lot of times, people will have certain things come to mind that, um, you know, predicting the future. There's been some very good stories written like the Lord of the Rings or the Matrix movies that talk about, you know, fulfilling a prophecy that was said many years ago. And that is true, only some of the time. A prophet was anybody that had a message from God. Some kind of message that God gave to him, and it might have been something that God actually spoke to him and said, Moses, here's what you're going to go tell the people. You're going to go tell, tell them to stop following those, those false gods and follow me. It might have come in the form of a dream, where we have um, that God gave a message to one of his prophets in a dream, and they woke up, they understood what it was, and so then they shared it. They, they gave that message. So a prophet was anybody that had a message from God, not just some lady that sat behind a curtain that if you go in and you lay down $5, she'll look at your palm and tell you whether or not it's your lucky year to buy a lottery ticket or anything like that. You know, we're not talking fortune cookies, of which I have a good story. Adam and I went and had lunch this last week and we, we had fortune cookies, we opened it up and Adam didn't have one. I don't know what that means, but ruined his day right there. So we're not talking about always predicting the future. What's going to happen tomorrow or next year or the year after that. But anything. Sometimes it was um, instruction or teaching. At other times it was simply um, encouragement. Or somebody was down and they needed their spirits uplifted. And so the message was rejoice in God because He is always there for you. And sometimes it was for telling the future of what was going to happen. The other thing to keep in mind about prophecy is that sometimes it had two meanings. One meaning for the immediate time. So that would be that, that present time when it was spoken, it was given a meaning a meaning that would, uh, would come true right then. But sometimes it also had a double meaning, that would come true in the future and we do this a lot nowadays you know if i was to say something like the sun gives light you know on one hand i might be talking about that ball of fire in the sky that we can't see today but gives us warmth and make it so our eyeballs can see if i say that in the church context then we understand that to mean the son of god who was born into this world who came as god brings light or truth, into a world full of evil and darkness. So it has that that double meaning there. And prophecy sometimes has the same thing. And today's prophecy is that way. It had a meaning for, for right then, when it was really spoken, but then we find out 700 years later that there is a deeper meaning. One that is much more... Um, It's much deeper, it's much bigger, much greater than when it was originally said. So, are we all all kind of on the same page right now? We have a little bit of uh, the idea of what we're going for with with double meaning in prophecy, and sometimes, you know, it wasn't just a person that predicted the future. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to get to this prophecy. Here we go. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's our prophecy. Now, if any of you have a study Bible of any kind that has study notes or, or um, little notes or scriptures in the margins, you'll probably find that in that verse 23 right there, you might have a little letter, a little number, an asterisk of some kind that points you back to Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And this is where that prophecy was originally spoken. Isaiah chapter 7 and uh, we'll start reading before this, but it actually comes in, uh, in verse, verse 14. So here we have Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet. Um, he has many prophecies. This won't be the first one that we come across for him. But in chapter 7, we have uh, three people. I'll give you a little background here because it doesn't tell you all of this in the notes. First, we have King Ahaz. He's the king of Judah, which is a southern kingdom. Okay? It's down south, King Ahaz. In the middle, just above Judah, down here, we have King Rezin. And so he is the son of another guy. Oh, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. King Pekah is the king of Israel. So we have Judah in the bottom with Ahaz. We have Pekah in the middle with Israel. I know, funny names. I'm going to never name my kids some of these. And then in the top, we have Syria, and that is King Rezin. So we have these three guys, Rezin, Pekah, and Ahaz. Now, the top two kings, Pekah and Rezin, they made a pact together, and they asked Ahaz to join them. Join us in a battle against Assyria. They're going to attack us. Join us. Let's make an anti-Assyrian pact together. And King Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, that makes these other two kings angry. And so they're, they're going to solve this problem by attacking him. They're going to attack King Ahaz and force him to go to war against Assyria. So now he's worried, and that's the context that we find this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of, Syria, of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, and Ephraim is another way of saying Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to me, Ahaz, you and Cher-Jasep, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Then skip down to verse ten. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Shoal or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, "Uh, I, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to rest, or to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. So there we have it. Does everybody fully understand it? It makes perfectly good sense now, right? Maybe not. There have been... Hundreds of people that have studied this text from the biblical account, from historical sources, from textual sources, all trying to to figure out what exactly it means. What are we supposed to take away from it? What did it mean way back then? And what does it mean uh, when Matthew spoke it and, and used it and applied it to Jesus? And here is a very good explanation. It says... Verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive. So we've got a young lady. Now, does it tell us who the young lady is? No, it doesn't. It doesn't give us a name. It doesn't give us any specifics at all. Because it's metaphorical. We know the end of it. The end of it is in verse 16. It says, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of the two kings will be destroyed. So that's the end of this. So we've got at the end, those two warring countries that have come down and attacked Judah, they're not going to be in existence anymore. And the beginning is the time when this is actually spoken. And so the idea is that this prophecy is not actually about a specific lady that's going to have a specific son that's actually going to raise him, but more of this is the time frame that it will happen in. So let's work with that a little bit. In the time that a young lady will get married, will have a child, will wean that child onto solid foods, and then teach that child the right, the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. How long does that take? We know how long it takes for a child to be born, right? So let's say this young lady gets married and then they have a kid real quick, about a year, right? So we've got one year. Now, how long does it take to, to wean a child off of the milk and onto solid foods? You can shout out an answer. I don't know. A year and a half, maybe? You know, give or take a little bit? I've had four kids that was kind of generally around there, you know, a year and a half they're eating some solid food, maybe two years they're you know completely off having bottles and all of that kind of stuff. So we're at a combined now of two and a half, three years. Now, how long does it take to teach a child the difference between right and wrong? Exactly. (laughs) Some of us are still working on that. Let's say, you know, generally, by age three, you, you tell a kid, no. They know, oh, that means I shouldn't touch that. Mom said don't do it you know, maybe it takes, you know, a little swat in the behind to to teach them these things. But by three, they might have a general understanding of it. But good and evil, you know, maybe even up through nine and ten to really understand what's the difference between good and evil. So if this is a, a prophecy about a time, a certain time when this will come to pass that these nations will be destroyed, you know, we're looking at Four years, maybe, on the, the short end, and maybe nine, ten years on the, the long end? Does that make sense in there? Now, to put that into practice, I need to tell you that the time that this was happening was 735 B.C. And we know this because we have records about certain kings when they took power And when they came out of power or who followed them, we have these things on record. And so we know that in 735 B.C., that's when this was being written. And we know that in 732 B.C., so three years after this was written, Assyria laid siege to Damascus, which was kind of the the capital of Syria, We have Assyria versus Syria. I know, it's complicated. Assyria destroyed Damascus. That's three years later. That's well within that time frame. Now, not only that, but Assyria then went and destroyed Israel. In 722, Jerusalem was destroyed. So you have... This prophecy that says, in just a few years, these two nations that that you're afraid of, that are going to make war against you, you won't have to worry about them. And what what comes to pass? Assyria comes and destroys Syria and destroys Israel. So this prophecy came true, right? You know, these prophecies that we have, these are one of the reasons why we can rely on God's word, on the Bible, as being true. Because these things were spoken, and they did happen. Now, King Ahaz was told at the very beginning, Isaiah came to him and said, don't worry about these nations, don't be afraid, but trust in God. That's where your trust really needs to be. Put your trust in God Not in your power, your soldiers, or your army, or any of that. You don't have to worry about these two countries. In fact, I'll give you a sign for it. In three years, in ten years, whatever, they won't even be in existence anymore. You will. And it came to pass. So did Ahaz learn that he can trust God? Did God prove himself faithful? The answer is yes, he did. Judah was still left after these two other countries were destroyed that Ahaz was afraid about. Judah is left standing. And you would think that that's good news. But here's the problem. Ahaz did not put his trust in God. Turn to 2 Kings. Let me show you a little bit more of the story. In 2 Kings chapter 16... We're going to find out that King Ahaz, even though he was told, don't fear, God will take care of it, Ahaz went and found somebody else to put his trust in. He was hedging his bets. Yeah, I know I won't rely on God's up there, but I'm not going to rely on him. I'm going to rely on something else. Second Kings chapter 16. Starting in verse 2, it says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. And then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz, here's, here's where we get to it. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who is attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its captives, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So do you see what happened here? We have Ahaz in the south, and Rezin and Pekah make war against them, because they want him to go to war against Assyria. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not gonna join with you guys. But then he sends a messenger to Assyria and says, Come and help me. And so Assyria comes down and destroys Syria and Israel. And you think, oh well it worked, right? He got saved. The king of Assyria was not a nice guy. And Judah had to continually pay tribute to Assyria for a long time. And it would have been better if that pact had never been made. And so we find Ahaz, who was told, trust in God. Instead, going to foreign countries that don't follow God, that do things like sacrifice their children, and he makes a pact with them. And so in the short term, yes, Judah got saved. But in the long run, It was far worse. Which brings us back to our prophecy. The prophecy came true. Judah was saved. And Ahaz, not trusting in God, instead trusting in his own self and the people around him, is not very much different than our own selves today. How many times do we choose not to trust in God? That, that is a problem that humanity has had from the beginning of time. You know, we think, I'm struggling, you know, I, I, I want to be a dad that's there for my family, that helps raise my kids, that's a good husband, that, that does stuff together. But you know what, finances are really tight right now, so, so God help me out, and I'm going to go get a second job, that way I can make more money. Yeah, I know it'll take me away from my family, and I won't be there to be there for my kids and, and be the good dad, but you know, I, I'm going to hedge my bets over here because I'm not sure what God will do, so I'm going to do it on my own. Or we think, I can get myself out of these problems instead of bringing them to God and relying on God. And so we find King Ahaz is not much different from us. Hopefully in some ways we're, we're a whole lot different. I mean, he sacrificed his own son and that's bad. Hopefully we're not sacrificing our children to... The God of sports or education, making sure they have the biggest and the best things, stuff. You get what I'm talking about here? We've got to rely on God and what He is doing in our life. Now, it's a a difficult journey because, one, I've said it before, God doesn't exactly speak to us from a burning bush or... Or in dreams and, you know, audibly where we can go, God, I need to know what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I want you to do, Eric. I want you to go over to your neighbor and you're going to ask him this and they'll take care of it. Thanks, God. He's not exactly working that way for us nowadays. And so there's, there's faith that we have to have in God. Now back to that double meaning. In Matthew chapter 1. This child that is prophesied about, this this second prophecy, the double fulfillment, how much deeper is it than just what happened way back then, 700 years ago? This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the point, because all of us have problems trusting in God all the time. We all sin. We all fall short. And so God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to be God with us. And God is with us now. He's living in our lives. He is working. He's living in you. He's living in me. God's Spirit is in us. He is God with us. He's not some foreign thing out there in some other country that's asking us to do weird things. This is the God of creation who is guiding our lives, who is, who is helping to shape us and the people that we need to be. And so that is the story behind this prophecy. We know that Jesus was born. By Mary, who was betrothed to be married to Joseph, but wasn't yet married. They weren't husband and wife. And she fulfills this prophecy with the birth of Jesus. That is something that we have to rely upon in this scripture. So I hope that that helps to, uh, to kind of give some of the information behind these. Each week we're going to take, take some of these and see what, it, what was going on back then. Why does it apply to Jesus when he was born? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the snow that we have falling outside, uh, for the beautiful scenery that it creates on your, your creation. God, I pray that we have confidence in you and I pray above all that we can put our trust in you. Trust in what you are doing in our lives and not not what we have in our own power or bank. Reminds. We pray this in Jesus Christ, and together we say, Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.